0: Thank you for listening to the faith Three Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the third Sunday in Lent, March 20, 2022, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the gospel lesson appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Luke chapter 13 verses 1 through 9. can be found on page 1619 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name Luke chapter 13 verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down." Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I've got an interesting hypothesis for you to consider this morning. As I thought about the sermon text this week, the gospel lesson, I came up with this. Not everybody believes in karma, but everybody wants to believe in karma. So in our minds, we know that God doesn't govern the universe through karma. That's not his thing. But we really, really want God to use karma at least some of the time. We all want the cheater to get caught, the criminal to serve time, and the jerk to end up with egg on his face. We want people who are kind to receive some kind of reward. We want heroes to be celebrated, and we want nice guys to finish first. But the world doesn't always work that way. And more often than not, our righteous indignation at the unfairness of the world extends to others. But rarely ever applies to us. This self justifying, judgmental attitude is what Jesus takes on in our gospel lesson this morning. As we turn our eyes back to Luke 13, let's take a look at what Jesus teaches about karma for thee, but not for me, and those kind of attitudes. So first, looking at Jesus' interaction with the crowds, we look at the obvious tragedy that was brought before our eyes. Jesus opens the gospel lesson by describing these two tragic events. First, he talks about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, this is one of those instances where if we're not careful, it's just going to seem like some sort of sterile event in the narrative of scripture. But we can't do that. In this case, what Jesus is describing was in fact a nightmare situation for a Jew of his time. It was awful. One of the worst things that you could imagine. What's going on here likely is that during Passover, for whatever reason, the governor Pontius Pilate would have had soldiers march into the temple area and kill a select number of Galileans as they were sacrificing their yearly sacrifice? That's probably what happened. We, we, we don't know exactly because there's no historical record beyond what's going on here in Scripture to, to verify exactly when and how this occurred. But, but as a Jew whether you're an honest Jew or a hypocritical Jew or whatever the case might be, to have your blood spilled in the temple and mixed with the blood of the animals you were sacrificing for the atonement of your sins would have been just about as bad as you can imagine it. I, I, I tried all week to come up with an equivalent for us today. And the best I came up with is if in all of those mass executions of Christians in the Middle East over the course of the last decade, instead of being beheaded, imagine the public outcry if all of those Christians had been crucified. And imagine the public outcry if all of those Christians being crucified would have been left to die in the method of crucifixion which means they would have been left there to hang on crosses until they suffocated to death. That's about as close as I could come to describe how horrific this thing Pilate did would have been to the mind of the modern Jewish audience. It was beyond tragic. Second, Jesus pivots from that to the collapse of the Tower of Siloam in Jerusalem, killing 18 individuals. This is another event that is only described in uh, Scripture. There's no historical record for the Tower of Siloam or the damage it did. But, But we can assume either the tower collapsed, killing 18 individuals working inside of it, or, or even, maybe even worse, the tower collapsed on simply people who were standing outside the tower. Uh, I think of a modern example of how tragic and it is unfortunate for those who are killed by a falling tree. it's it's like one of the the most random events you can predict killing a human. You have to be in the worst possible spot at the worst possible time. This is that sort of thing, except it's 18 people. So beyond a shadow of a doubt, what what Jesus is describing here is, is tragic. It's awful. It's horrible. Horrible. And this is where we start to build our case for what Jesus is teaching These two events are all about tragedy and suffering. The Galileans suffer because of the sins of someone else, in this case, Pilate and the soldiers who murdered them. Those in or around the Tower of Siloam suffer the effects of a seemingly random disaster, something that is not controllable. But the Jews of Jesus' day wouldn't have seen it that way. They wouldn't have understood what happened in those terms. The Jews of Jesus' day, at least some of the Jews from a particular school of thought, would have made these two tragedies all about divine punishment and retribution. The Jews of Jesus' day would have backed themselves into a corner and would have been forced to confess that the things that happened to the Galileans and the things that happened to the people whom, upon whom the Tower of Siloam collapsed, had what they, they got what they had coming to them, that God was punishing them for something in their lives. Now, as we think about that, and before we all scoff at ancient superstition, what we really need to do here is admit that 2,000 years later, in Western civilization, in America, we more or less do the same thing. Maybe not in specific terms, maybe not as as brashly or crassly, although, honestly, if you're on social media after a tragedy happens, you're going to see it one way or the other. But if at any time we communicate to someone who is suffering that perhaps God has a lesson for them to learn in their suffering, or if at any time we communicate to someone who is suffering that God has a plan in all of this, we aren't being compassionate. We're heaping more of a burden on their suffering. We're equating their suffering with sin and with God's punishment. But that's not the worst of these tragedies. The whole point of Jesus' teaching about these tragedies moves from the obvious tragedy to the unspoken reality. Jesus asks a rhetorical question that really gets to the heart and soul of the matter for his audience. Do you think that they were worse sinners. Do you think that they were worse sinners? The troubling thing for us, as we read about Jesus' teaching today, is that the answer is almost always and whether or not we want to admit it, yes. Yes, we think they were worse sinners. Now as awful as that sounds, especially when we tie it to specific tragedies, you're going to need to think about this because ranking people, including ourselves, according to holiness and or piety is the default position of our sinful nature. If we can't deceive ourselves into thinking we can earn God's favor, or at least pay Him back with our good works, then the next best thing, as far as our sin is concerned, is to convince ourselves that we need to be better than the next guy. And we're always doing it. Sometimes, and most often, I believe, without even realizing we're doing it. How many times have you justified a not-so-awful offense that you committed by saying, sure, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not Hitler? Or, this is where it happens most often, and I really want you to pay attention because I've heard multiple people in this congregation confess this to me. There's no way Jesus could forgive this I don't have my life put together as much as the next person. Whether that's the person in front of you or beside you or behind you. See, we don't always rank ourselves based on our pride. Sometimes we rank ourselves based on our humility. And we convince ourselves we've committed the one sin that God can't die for. We've out God's mercy, and we've out God's grace, because we're not Billy Graham. And if these examples are a little too extreme for your case, consider our addiction to self-justification. How many times in the last week, or let's say the last three and a half weeks, let's cover the, uh, the war in Ukraine, How many times in the last three and a half weeks have you been ready to pour out vitriol and justice against someone who has committed some offense, no matter how severe? How many times has your righteous indignation reared its head, ready to devour? Or how many times? Have you been ready to completely excuse one of your own actions through a convoluted loop of self-justification when you've done something even remotely similar? Now, let's just do something innocuous. How many times have you accused a driver in the last week of being a lunatic? And in turn, how many times have you excused one of your actions in cutting someone off, or driving fast, or tailgating, or even yelling at someone when you're the only one in the car who could hear you because you know what you're doing. You know what kind of business you're about. It happens way more often than we care to admit. These are the attitudes that Jesus is targeting And that Jesus is assaulting with his rhetorical questions in Luke 13. Do you think you are any better? And this question exposes our own addiction to an inconsistency with karma. But in Jesus' teaching, there's a desired outcome to this entire exchange. And that is a limited opportunity. Let's listen again to Jesus' words in verse 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The outcome of our lives, and especially the outcome of our suffering, should automatically and always be repentance. We just talked about this this morning down in the Sunday school class. Why should we always be repenting? One, because we've sinned. And we need to turn from our wicked ways and repent. Two, because sometimes our suffering is because of our sin. That's how God gets our attention. And we should repent. But third... Also in repenting, no matter if we're suffering as the consequence of our sin or no matter if we're suffering because that is just what God has given us to do in the moment, we repent because in repenting, God is ready and willing to comfort us with the forgiveness of our sins and our eternal life. In repenting, God wants you to know that He no longer evaluates you by your performance. He evaluates you by the performance of Jesus Christ. And in repenting, He wants you to remind you, He wants to remind you about that. Time and time and time again. That's the point of Jesus' parable of the barren fig tree. A man had a fig tree he planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. And so he said to his vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it, why should it use up the ground? And he answered them, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Consider these words again with Jesus' warning. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is the reality that Jesus is communicating this morning. God must punish sin. It is built into his divine justice. It is built into his holiness in his perfection. And if God does not punish sin, he would be neither just nor holy. It's the way it works. But God's desire in His grace and in His mercy, which are at the root of His character, is not to punish sin. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God's desire is to forgive sin and to have mercy, and so God is patient. He does not punish sins immediately. He does not smite us with his cosmic lightning bolt as soon as we sin. He gives us both time and opportunity to repent. The message from Jesus Christ as he is just days away from marching into Jerusalem and going to the cross and dying in our place, the message from Jesus Christ is that time is running out. The end is near. Not ironically, like some man in Times Square, but literally and actually. One way or another, you will be ushered in to eternity either through death or through the return of Christ. And at that moment, your opportunity to repent vanishes. At that moment, God punishes sin. And at that moment, it is God's great desire to have your sin punished on Jesus Christ instead of on you. God's desire for you today, and tomorrow, and Tuesday, and every day of your life, until you die, is for you to repent. Not as a good work, not as a demonstration of your humility, or holiness, or piety, or anything like that but because God wants to forgive you. That is the message you carry with you as you leave today. God wants to forgive you. He is not unwilling. He is not ever going to pull back that carrot on a string. God's default position, the core of his godness, is grace. Mercy that He is ready and willing to pour out on you in an inexhaustible fashion. You can't disqualify yourself from His mercy. You can only refuse to believe. God is there, He has sent His Son. He wants you to repent and he is ready to forgive because Jesus has already done the work of being punished for your sin. Jesus has already done the work of conquering your death. Jesus has risen from the dead and Jesus has shed his blood for your forgiveness. Amen.